You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. How do you transform culture? Right, in a sense, that's, that's what we're called to do as, as Christians. Or perhaps what we mean to say is that's what God is doing. Um, his work through his church is one of transforming culture. Right? That's, that's what we were told to pray when, when we asked Jesus, when his disciples asked him to teach them to pray. Part of what he said was this, pray this way, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, pray that God would change our culture. Pray that God would change our, our values, change our, our ways of living in, into ways that are in line with, with his kingdom instead of our own pursuits. And so certainly it's the, it's the call of Christ that his people would be engaged with, with our culture. We'll be working for its transformation. That's the call on our lives. We see that in our own church. That's part of our vision as, as a church, that we would see the culture of our community change. So I'm just going to remind you of some of the words from our own church's vision. We say that we want to see people being set free from fears, pain, failures, and most of all, sin, so much so that the College Creek Corridor would not be a place of chaos and death, but of life and flourishing. That's, that's culture change. We, our vision is a changed culture. We want to see the very nature of the College Creek Corridor changed. But, but notice how it's changed. It's changed by individuals being changed by individuals being set free, finding freedom in Christ. So how do you transform a culture? Well, one by one, person by person. Culture change begins with personal transformation. And personal transformation begins not with the actions or the the habits of people, but with the beliefs that lay beneath those habits and those actions and those behaviors, right? Because as we saw last week in our study in Titus 1, it's our beliefs that, that shape us, that form us, that inform our actions in this world. And so if I want to see cultural transformation, then we have to see people's hearts, people's lives gripped by the truth of the gospel. Right? And, and the corporate world agrees with us, at least they agree with us on the method of culture change. Uh, in a 2017 article in the Harvard Business Review, which I don't regularly read the Harvard Business Review, but there was an article in 2017 that I found on the internet earlier this week um, that talked about how do you change culture? How do you change your company culture? And here's what they said. Culture change can't be achieved by a top-down mandate. It lives in the collective hearts and habits of people and their shared perception of how things are done around here. Someone with authority can demand compliance, but they can't dictate optimism and trust and conviction and creativity. Right? 
Culture change can't be accomplished through a top-down mandate, but it comes through the collective hearts of the people. If we were to put that into sort of Christian terms, we might say legalism will not lead to culture change. If you want to see a culture change, if you want to see a people change, you have to see their hearts changed, their beliefs changed. And of course, that's important for us as as followers of Jesus, right? Because we're called to see the kingdom of God come here on earth. And so as the people of God, we want to see the culture of God breaking in in dramatic ways. And we're going to see that laid out for us in our passage today, a passage where we're told to silence false teachers and to transform culture through living lives of truth and godliness. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. It's a very small letter at the very end of your Bible. I told you last week, but I'll remind you again, all the T's in the Bible are together. So if you'll find the T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, any of them, just go to the last one. That's Titus. And we will be there in, um, in chapter one. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 1100. Um, And if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please feel free to take one of those with you. We would love to give you that gift. We're going to look this morning at Titus 1, um, verses 5 to 16. Let me read that for, for us. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelievers, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So 
allow me to just summarize this passage in, in a quick sentence, and then, we'll, and then we'll dive in in a little bit more detail and try to understand what it's saying, how it might apply to us in our, in our current situation. So just remember that this is a letter being written by the Apostle Paul to his young apprentice, Titus, who he's left on the island of Crete. And, and in this passage, we're going to see kind of the purpose statement of the letter. And in some ways, the, the purpose statement of Titus's ministry here in Crete. Here's what he's supposed to do. Titus is to appoint elders who are gripped with the gospel, who are, who are brimming with godliness. Why? Because of false teachers and a culture of debauchery. He's supposed to appoint elders, right? That's right there at the beginning in verse five. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul has already told him to go through every town and appoint elders. And now he's reminding him of this task, but he isn't just supposed to appoint anybody to that position. There's very particular people, people who are gripped with the truth. We might say that they themselves are, are gripping truth, right? We see that in verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he can give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it, right? But, but truthiness isn't enough. These people are also supposed to be sort of brimming with godliness, Right? We see that all throughout those verses six to eight. Um, most clearly we see it in that phrase in verse seven where it says, God's steward must be above reproach. That phrase, above reproach, brimming with godliness. And so he's to appoint elders who are gripped with truth and brimming with godliness. Why? Well, for two reasons. Because there are false teachers and because there's a culture of debauchery. He starts that second paragraph in verse 10 with that word for or because. Why do I do all of this? Because. Appoint elders because there are false teachers and a whole bunch of them, many of them. But not only that, he says the whole culture is corrupt, right? That's what the Cretans say about themselves. He says they, they say of themselves that they're all liars. They're all lazy um, or evil beasts and lazy gluttons. It's a culture that is just fully corrupt and getting more and more corrupt by the day because there are false teachers all over the place, even in the church. And so Titus is instructed to appoint elders who are gripped by the truth and brimming with godliness. Why? Because ultimately Paul wants to see culture transformed. He doesn't just want to see good elders he wants to see the culture itself changed. And in order to do that, the church needs to be led well by elders who love the Lord and who are living lives of godliness. Right? As, as followers of Jesus, that's, that's our desire as well. At least it should be our desire as well. But as Paul knew and what has been confirmed repeatedly in scripture, in our own lives, in the world as a whole, transformation does not happen by mandate. It doesn't happen by rules, right? It happens by the reviving of hearts, 
by people being taken over by the truth of God. Lasting and effectual change doesn't come through legalism. It comes when our hearts are gripped by the truth. And as that truth begins to take root in us, it begins to bear the fruit of godliness in our lives. And as it happens in the life of individuals, it begins to happen in a culture as well. And so we might say that the instruction to us here is that we, all of us, that we might silence false teachers, that we, all of us, might transform culture by living lives of truth and godliness. Now, I know we, we might look at this passage and we think, oh, wait a minute, this passage isn't talking about all of us, it's talking about elders, right? Isn't the takeaway of this passage just, hey, find some good people, appoint them to be your leaders, appoint them to be your elders, right? That's what it's telling me to do, right? Well, I mean, that point is there. We, we should have good and godly leaders who are in fact gripped by the gospel. We definitely want that. We want leadership in our churches like that. And certainly that's what we want here at College Creek Church, right? So we, we appoint people into these positions. We, we don't call them elders, we call them pastors, um, but we put them in positions of leadership. We hope then that they would be these two things, gripped by the gospel, that they would be brimming with godliness. Pastors are important in our churches, and the role of a pastor matters, especially, right, when we think about those instructions in verse 9, that they would be sound in doctrine so they could rebuke those false teachers, that those who are coming in to contradict the truth. We need pastors. We need elders who will contradict them. However, I think that we like to read this passage and instead of heeding the high calling of Christ on all of our lives, we just get to think, Whew, boy, am I glad that I'm not a pastor. Boy, am I glad that no one's asking me to be an elder because those are the ones who are supposed to live lives this way. And apparently me, as long as I'm just sitting in the folding chair, I don't have to worry about it. But in fact, in fact, what he seems to be saying is that all of us need to be gripped by the gospel. All of us need to live lives that are brimming forth with godliness. This is true for all of us. Let me just show you how I see that here in this passage. So the first words of verse six. Okay, so verse five ends with him being told to appoint elders. And then he says, if anyone is above reproach, right? In, in other words, Titus is instructed to find people who are already doing these things. He's not saying, hey, look at your elders and make sure they're above reproach. He's saying, look at everybody and find those who are above reproach, right? The elders don't start living this way after they're appointed into this office of the church. Rather, it's because they are living this way that they might be called into and instructed in, appointed into this position in the church. And so this is actually being written to all followers of Jesus, that all of us are to be transformed by the gospel in such a way that we would begin to live lives of radical godliness. And that our culture would begin to see our lives in such a way and the truth that we hold to would become more compelling 
at the very least, it would look more true because we're actually living in light of what we believe, right? It's when we live lives of truth and godliness that false teaching is silenced, that culture is transformed, right? But that call, that call to truth and godliness is, is a high calling, it's a high calling. Now, I don't, I don't want to belabor all of the points in this text. We could go all day. There's a whole bunch of words that we could unpack there. And we're not going to do that. But what I do want to do is, is just, we're just going to read through them. I trust that you're going to know what many of them mean. But on a few of them, I want to dive in a little deeper. So let's just look at the call of godliness on our life. I draw our attention first to this phrase, above reproach. Right? He says it in verse 6, but then again in verse Seven, what does it mean to be above reproach? It doesn't seem like he's telling us in this passage that we're called to sinless perfection. There are other passages in scripture that tell us that. This one doesn't seem to be saying that. What this one seems to be saying, this particular passage, the call is to be above accusation above accusation, that is live in such a way that false accusations that come against you will easily be proven false. Because, because people know, people see, and they understand your character in such a way that false accusations, you're above reproach. It's what um, Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right? That is, live in such a way that your life itself defends you against false accusations. Okay, and then underneath above reproach, in verse 7 and 8, Paul's going to put, put all of these other things underneath above reproach. What does it look like to live above reproach? Well, five things that you ought not do and six things that you ought to do. Here's what he says. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In essence, what he's saying is, hey, just be completely controlled by the truth, so much so that godliness would begin to come out. Don't be, don't be arrogant. He says, don't be prideful. Don't be full of yourself. How, how is it that you're not gonna be arrogant and prideful and full of yourself where you're gonna believe the truth? about who God is. When you believe the truth about what God says of who you are, it's very hard to be prideful and arrogant if you understand rightly who God is and rightly who you are. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't be quick-tempered or easily angered. How is it that I'm not gonna be quick-tempered and easily angered? Well, I could remember the truth of what God says when he says in Romans that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now I don't have to get angry when someone does something against me because I'm trusting in the justice of God. Don't be a drunkard, he says. Let me just pause here and widen this out a little bit. What he seems to be saying is this, don't put yourself under the controlling power of any substance. The only controlling power that we're supposed to have in our lives is the spirit of God. 
That's, in fact, what Scripture does. Scripture does this crazy things with, with contrast. It never contrasts things the way we expect it to. And so when it talks about drunkenness in Ephesians 5, the contrast to drunkenness is not sobriety. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The contrast, the opposite of drunkenness is Spirit-filled living. So he says, don't be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. That is, don't be a lover of money. Don't be someone who's, who's stingy, maybe even oppressive of other people with this one goal that you could build your empire, your own little empire up, or maybe your own very big empire up. We think about some false teachers in, in our world, even today, we might be reminded of the fact that not too many years ago, a a very famous false teacher told his entire congregation that God had told him he needed a new Learjet and they all needed to donate their money so that he could get that new jet that God had promised to him. False teachers, those who were greedy for gain, but let's not just think of that, but think of our own lives as well. The ways in which we hoard money the ways in which we take what isn't rightly ours. Why? Because we are greedy for gain. He says, this is not the way we're supposed to live. Instead, instead he says this, be hospitable, hospitable. Now, we misinterpret this word all the time in scripture. The word hospitality in scripture, um, the way we like to think of it, and we like to think of like, oh, that means I'm going to open my home up and have all my friends over. I'm going to, you know, put out the cheese platter. I'm going to be hospitable when my friends come over, right? But actually the word that's being translated in scripture into hospitality is the word love of the stranger or love of the other. It's not you inviting your friends in, it's you inviting those who are different than you in. It's you creating a space of welcome for strangers. You loving those who are radically different than you. To be hospitable is not to love your friends. I mean, that's what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus says, hey, even sinners do that. Even sinners open their homes up and invite everybody in because they're expecting that person to invite them in later. Even sinners do that. Hospitality is when we welcome in those who are different than us, those who we have nothing in common with, those who can't or will not repay our kindness with an invite of their own. That's hospitality, that we'd be welcoming to those who are different. So he says, be hospitable, be a lover of good, be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, right? That is, live a life of godliness, right? But, but hear me, this isn't some legalistic code that's required for your salvation. That's not what's happening. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that when you're gripped by the gospel, these things will begin to just come out in the way that you live. When you actually believe and hold to the truth, the result, the fruit of your life will be these very things here. Truth leads 
to godliness. And godliness points back to truth. Right? So why is it that we need to live lives of truth and godliness? Well, because there are false teachers all around. There's a culture that needs to be transformed by the truth of Jesus. We need to live lives of truth and godliness so that falsehood might be silenced. Right? The same The same situation that faced them there in the first century Crete faces us today. There are still false teachers and they still need to be silenced. And so the question we might ask is, what does a false teacher look like? Well, Paul tries to help us out here in these verses. He says in verse 10, three things, they're insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Paul says that they refuse to submit, they're insubordinate, they refuse to submit to the gospel to the Lord, to the way of grace. They're not insubordinate to Paul or to Titus. They're insubordinate to ultimately Jesus, to the gospel itself. Their insubordination comes out when they teach things that ought not be taught, right? They're empty talkers. He says that we see their devotion to Jewish myths and commands of people um, who turn them away from the truth. They're more interested. This is what it means to be involved in empty talk. They're more interested in the myths and speculation than they are about the truth of the gospel. Have you ever met a person like that? They can talk all day about things about the Bible, all of the, all the questions, all the myths of the Bible. Why doesn't this genealogy match up with that genealogy? What's going on there? I don't understand why. And I had this conversation just yesterday with someone. Hey, in Genesis 1, in this particular verse, why is it the only verse that says, it? like, who cares? You know, Genesis 1 is about that the God of all eternity created everything that is and gloriously created mankind in his own image. And that's Genesis 1 for you. Whether or not that particular verse has that particular word, who cares? But we, we get captured by these myths and speculations that Scripture, frankly, doesn't care that much about. All the things that we argue about in Scripture, you know what they are? They're the things that Scripture aren't clear about. So if we would devote as much time just glorying in all the things that scripture is clear about, if we would spend as much time just talking with one another about how enormously beautiful it is, that the the God of the universe loves us, a thing that there's no question about. And we we could just talk about that. If we spend as much time doing that as we spent speculating about the myths of scripture, the things that we can't see, the things that we don't understand. Here's what false teachers do. They, they make a decision about something we don't know and then they demand that you believe the same way as they do or you're not a Christian. That's what false teachers do. They're full of empty talk and deception. They're making much of things that the Bible does not make much of and far less of the things that scripture is very concerned with. False teachers will demand that. They'll demand that you believe things that are unclear while they themselves are unclear on who Jesus is and what he has done. It it seems that these teachers were in, in, in the time of Titus in Crete, they were adding to and taking away from the gospel. They were teaching a false 
gospel. They were telling all these new believers that Jesus alone wasn't enough, that they needed to add some things to Jesus. They need to add their own righteousness. I mean, there's all sorts of problems with a view that we have to add our own righteousness to Jesus, but the biggest problem of all is that we don't really have any righteousness to add. So if that's a demand for our salvation, we are all in a heap of trouble, right? Let me just be completely clear. There is nothing that you can do to earn your way into the favor of God. There is nothing that you can do to earn forgiveness, to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. And just like any other gift, it is freely given and it is not earned. And so, so in a sermon where on the one hand, we're emphasizing a life of godliness that all of us as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're called to a life of godliness. So while we're emphasizing that, I just wanna be clear that your life of godliness is not a requirement in order that you would be saved. Rather, godliness is the overflow of a life that is gripped by the truth of the gospel. And so just for clarity, let me lay out for us what the Bible says about the gospel. The Bible tells us that all have sinned, all of us. And, and, and even more than that, what it tells us is that we're dead in our sins. We are completely incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. We are hopeless on our own. And it says the thing that we earn by that sin is death. We are dead and hopeless. And these false teachers are trying to convince people that they can do something on their own for salvation. But how could a dead person do anything to save themselves? We need a power that is outside of ourselves to bring new life. And that's the gospel. The work of Jesus Right, the Bible says we can't do anything to save ourselves, which is why Jesus came. It's why he came and did for you what you could not do on your own. He came and lived that perfect, sinless life. And then he voluntarily, willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice so that anyone who would repent and believe in him would be saved. And friends, the only hope of salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. You must fully trust in Jesus. But false teachers, they'll tell you, hey, Jesus is good. There's just a little bit more that you need to do too. Right? They're teaching a way of salvation is really following a list of, of rules and requirements. And Paul's gonna level two critiques against this idea of legalism here. On, on the one hand, he says, in, in essence, no matter how pure you think you are going to get on your own through your legalism, no matter how pure you think you will be, your rulemaking and your rule following will never make you pure. Why? Because to those who are outside of Christ, to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. That's what he says in verse 15. To the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Behavior change without belief change will not last. The only way that actions will ever be pure is if you are made pure by Christ. But the second problem with legalism is this, that it actually leads to more sin. 
Legalism leads to more sin. And here's why, because when we create a list of things that one has to do in order to be saved, when we create a checklist for ourselves, then everything that's not on that checklist becomes fair game. I can do whatever I want as long as it's not on this checklist right here. And so there's a book in 2007 by a Christian author named Jerry Bridges. He wrote this book called Respectable Sins, about sins in the church that we all just kind of respect. We just overlook. Not a big deal if you're doing those things. In other words, they're the sins that we've left off of our checklist, right? Here's some things that he says. Um, He points out these sins, jealousy, judgmentalism, discontentment, pride, greed, anger. Actually, he kind of points out all the exact same things that Paul just told Titus, we all need to be not doing. And yet in the church, here's his point. He says, in the church, we've decided that pride doesn't really matter. As long as you're not, you know, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, you're good. As long as you're not doing drugs, your greed doesn't matter, right? As long as you're not a homosexual, your anger doesn't matter, right? We've got our checklist, check, check, check. I'm good, now I can do whatever I want. And legalism leads to more sin. And so what Paul is saying here. Right, the problem with legalism is I'm not living a life of godliness. The problem with legalism is actually that I become unfit, he says, for any good work. For any good work. Paul says this is what false teachers are doing. And in it, he says they're upsetting whole families. That's actually a really bad translation. It says they're upsetting. Upsetting is the the wrong word. The the right word is destroying. And families is the wrong word. The right word is church. What's actually happening is these false teachers are destroying whole churches with their false teaching. And we can look around. We can look around at churches that have been utterly destroyed by this same false teaching. Paul says, They're tearing apart and tearing down the church, so they must be rebuked. But this is the end goal of rebuking them, and this is beautiful. In verse 13, he says, the end goal is that not that they would be removed from the church, not that we would kick them out. The end goal is that they would become sound in the faith. The goal of rebuking false teachers is that they would become truth believers, The goal of rebuking false teachers is that they would come to repentance. The goal is always salvation. That's the goal he lays before us, that they would become sound in faith, gripped by the truth. They would begin to live lives of godliness, right? Because truth leads to godliness always. And one by one, And person by person, as truth takes root and godliness is produced, culture is changed. And the kingdom of God comes here on earth, even as it is in heaven. How do we silence false teaching and and transform culture? Well, by living lives of truth and godliness. But that order, it's important. That order is important. 
Truth leads to godliness, never the other way around. Truth leads to godliness. Culture change can't be accomplished by top-down mandate, but only through the gospel taking root in our lives and transforming us one by one. So may that be true of each and every one of us. May we become a people that are gripped by the truth and brimming with godliness. Let's pray that God would do that even now. Would you pray? Father, that is, that is what we ask. Lord, we ask that you would grab hold of us with your truth. And Lord, that we would grab hold of your truth as well. And that the result would be godliness in our lives. Lord, we pray for any and all the ways that we ourselves have, have succumbed to false teaching, have believed false teaching, and even has, have taught falsely. And we pray, Lord, that you, by, by your spirit, would reveal that falsehood that we might become sound in the faith, that we truly might hold fast to the truth that has been delivered through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that as we do that, And really, as you do that in us, that our very culture would be changed, that the College Creek Corridor would be changed, and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.